Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. episode on evolution, we focused on one cosmic question regarding the nature of humanity. Are we animals or something special? Have our ancestors always been human or did we come from something seemingly lesser? However, another question was being debated in parallel to that. Are all humans equal? Today we'll be looking at two ways in which this question was argued against. Scientific racism, which argued that there are multiple unequal races of humans, and eugenics, which promoted genetic manipulation on the individual level to improve the species. Let's begin. I'm here on HI 101 with Dan McGinnis. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about uh, scientific racism and eugenics. So nice light one today. <laughs> I just wanted to say something quick before we start and uh, this is, uh, this is just for me specifically, but we actually really struggled, or I actually really struggled with uh, whether or not to do this topic uh, this month, given the unrest specifically in the United States, but all over uh, in terms of anti-Black racism and police brutality. Uh, it was a bit of a, hmm, is this the best time for us to be talking about this? And uh, we decided to go ahead, partially because uh, what we're talking about today is not directly addressing you know, the civil rights movement or anything like that. So while you'll hear things that are kind of relevant, obviously, I, I'm not I'm not attempting to tackle any of the uh, any of the issues that are being addressed uh, in any meaningful way. But I thought it was also really important to go ahead with our plans in case some of the stuff we said does give people a little bit of context. I'm not claiming to have any answers or be any sort of authority on any of this stuff. Please don't make me your only source on anything like this. There are lots of other uh, more authoritative people to listen to, but you know, uh, I, I don't think it's going to necessarily hurt anything either. So, with that out of the way, uh, yeah, let's let's talk about scientific racism and and, and what exactly uh, that is. This is, of course, part of our our series on fascism, and part of the reason we talked about evolution last time is that it helps to contextualize some of the uh, concepts we're going to be discussing today because. While scientific racism and eugenics certainly don't start with Darwin or evolution in general, they, they, you know, that whole discussion in the scientific community certainly has a major impact on how, uh, you know, the, the conception of race in society, uh, as well as the conception of, uh, eugenics and improvement of the human race, uh, are discussed in the late 19th century and early 20th century. 
So I suppose the first thing that I want to get out of the way here is to talk about what exactly race is, uh, you know, in the in the uh, modern conception of it, which is that it's a social construct and virtually always has been. Now, when I say it's a social construct, that obviously doesn't mean that it's not real or anything like that. We live with how many con social constructs around us all the time, right? Like, you know, you can't just say, well, money is a social construct and then just like not pay for anything, right? Like social constructs are a very real thing that have an impact on our lives. But the way that we think about it now, which is that in general, uh, physical characteristics are, are generally kind of our, our primary driving motivation with uh, when discussing race. That's really not always been how people think about it. For most of history, uh, race has been far more about uh, family or culture, uh, descent, sort of what we would talk about as ethnicity, than it has been uh, about what we consider race today. Uh, a stronger identifying of nationality with the concept of race than we would now. Yes. Um, yes, in, in uh, to some extent, but also there's the issue of the modern uh, iteration of nationalism also being something to, to consider as as a relatively recent development, right? So, yeah, it, it's a, it's about who you know and who you're from uh, and who you consider part of your in-group and out-group. Right. And there's a couple of different models that end up being followed there, you know? Like, there's a lot of emphasis on uh, language, a lot of emphasis on religion, and very little on what you what you look like. So the Greek model is a, is a pretty typical one of the ancient world. So um, basically in the Greek world, either you're a Greek or you're a barbarian. Are you are you familiar with the etymology of the word barbarian? It's part of Spain, isn't it? Yes, but the 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 word barber is it has actually an older root, uh, which that region was named okay. after, which is that the Greeks believed that that's what it sounded like when non-Greek people spoke. They just they just <laughs> oh. went bar 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 bar, like. <laughs> so this is the Charlie Brown teacher, yeah, interpretation of other nations, basically. Okay, and so. <laughs> There's, you know, there's physical uh, differences noted among barbarians in the Greek world, but like most of the differences are attributed to things like uh, intellect and their environment. They believe that, you know, of course, the Greeks are more intelligent than the barbarians and like kind of very obvious, obvious things there. But a key element here is that a barbarian could become a Greek simply by adopting Greek culture, language and integrating into Greek society. So race is this like very like mutable thing right it, it's not it, it's not something that is inherent to your biology the way that we're going to end up thinking about it today right like it's it's very much about family in all the ways that family can be including you know adoption right huh. that's a little surprising yeah a little bit right um we're we're very 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 trained to think of, of physical characteristics as being like a major uh component and it's it's not like it wasn't anything you know there's there's a uh, discussion from third century han dynasty china of you know talking about barbarians as being green eyed and golden haired and it makes them look like the monkeys they're clearly dis uh, descended from you know uh, which actually brings me to another point that i wanted to make which is that in the evolution one we kind of stuck human evolution in the second half to some extent focusing on how it fit into Darwin's model, there's kind of one big question besides whether or not uh, there are human ancestors or sorry, non-human ancestors of humans. The other big question about the nature of humanity is a discussion between 
monogenism and uh, polygenism, which is basically, was there one human ancestor or multiple? Mm. And kind of the underlying question there is, are all human beings related to each other? And, you know, as a, as a further extrapolation, are all human beings equal or not? Is there a hierarchy to this at all? A medieval model of race is kind of based in the Old Testament, uh, which is not terribly surprising, I suppose. One thing I've always kind of not quite envied, but found really interesting about uh, medieval Europe's worldview is how steady it remains for almost a thousand years there, because they they kind of pinned down a world model so early on that, you know, while it's going to end up being pretty flawed in a lot of ways, just sort of holds true for a good stretch of time. It makes for like a very like stable feeling of your place in society, which is kind of interesting. Right. They had a model that that worked in economic and social terms, and it took a lot to shake that. Mm -hmm. And you'll see that here with race as well, because the the, the model is based on specifically uh, the, the story of Noah and his three sons. Right. So if you if you need a refresher, God floods the entire earth and all humans are killed except Noah his three sons and their wives. So logically speaking, all humans are descended from these three men, uh, hmm. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And there's this model that each of these sons is a is the ancestor of a, a race of humans in the world. So uh, Shem is the root of the word Semitic, right? So Asian. Ham goes to Hamitic, which is a, a completely outdated term it's not really used anymore or african and japhitic is uh european so they would they would have thought of it as greek specifically but yeah. that's sort of the 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 worldview that they're working with is everyone's coming from one of these three races of people but they're they have a common origin right so in in general in europe you're going to have a monogenist origin story be, you know based on adam and eve right right the important thing to understand about this model is something that's known as the curse of Ham. There's this story after the flood is over in the Bible, which is usually where most people's understanding of Noah's Ark kind of ends. There's this story where basically Noah got really, really drunk and passed out naked in his tent. And oh, Ham, Ham went in and saw him naked, went out and told his brothers. So Shem and Japheth backed into the tent carrying a, a cloak basically and covered up uh, noah so they didn't see him naked and was it a cloak of invisibility no <laughs> no they just Are covered up before they brothers? turned around come on um, did they meet on a bridge i'm sorry I no 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 none of that nonsense come on um no so so noah wakes up he's really mad at ham somehow he knows that ham saw him naked i don't know there's a lot of deba debate over this this story but he's so mad that he gets god to curse ham and all of his descendants wow now the curse is specifically on uh ham's son canaan who is implied in the story to be the the ancestor of of the nation of canaan in the middle east which you know at the time of writing the bible uh had been enslaved by other nations in the, in the region. And so this story is kind of held up as a bit of like a justification for why it was okay to enslave them, I guess. I mean, hmm. even, even thousands of years ago, people are kind of like, that seems excessive for 
what happened here. And anyway, there's a huge debate over it. But one notable thing about this is that in the Talmud, which is a series of writings by rabbi about, you know, sort of expanding on the Torah, um, there's a tradition that comes up that Ham's curse goes along with darkened skin, which is why people in Africa have darker skin than in Asia or in Europe in this tradition. Mm -hmm. So when this all starts, there's this like, understanding of a very specific allegory for a very small number of nations relationships with one another but as you expand it out over time and over geography it turns into this whole darker skin as a curse thing and this is going to be held up for a very long time the big shake-up to this system comes with the european discovery of the new world the problem there is that there's already people there (laughs) They have no classification for these people in their existing systems. Yeah, exactly. There's this huge debate over like, who are these people? Why are they here? Where do they come from? Like what, you know, specifically like biblically speaking, it it massively rattles their model of how the world is supposed to exist to the point where there's discussion of like, well, are they actually human beings or are they just like some sort of very advanced ape? they they don't they don't know how to like jam it into this system right uh i think one of the solutions they eventually settle on is that it might be a a lost tribe of israel that had wandered so far away from the holy land that when god flooded the world uh he forgot about that part of the world it was so far and that's how they survived (laughs) which plays this double role of kind of like grandfathering them in and uh suggesting that they are descended from people who were so sinful that they were supposed to be washed away, thereby justifying the European compulsion to convert all of them. Right. A lot of, a lot of fitting existing facts into a convenient narrative. Mm-hmm. This is going to be something that we're going to keep coming back to with scientific racism, which is race as a justification for uh, subjugation or colonialism. Because in a lot of ways, the way people start caring about race is a consequence of conquest. There's sort of a need, and I I think a very understandable one, to somehow justify doing really terrible things to other people. And you can kind of see people sort of tricking themselves into thinking that it's okay for, you know, reasons that are listed in the Bible. It's right there. It's fine. Or uh, as, as we get into the actual scientific racism, purely objective and scientifically conceived uh, divisions that, that justify racial superiority or inferiority. And it's kind of a self-deception that, that you know, helps you sleep a little bit better at night, but is kind of all the more insidious for it. Absolutely. What has led a lot of monsters in history sleep soundly. Oh, uh, absolutely. 100%. The early modern period brings around, you know, the scientific revolution and specifically naturalists, which is a thing that we talked about quite a bit during evolution, which is basically there's this cool period in science where you could be a master of like five disciplines because there was so little to know at that point. And a way that you could legitimately make a name for yourself in science was like just going going around and like naming creatures that haven't necessarily been written down yet. Right. Like. <laughs> You, you can just write a book that's like, I found 18 kinds of bees. And everyone's like, you're a genius. Which, you know, it seems like a modern analog is uh, a really obsessive person with a blog. 
Oh, like I have categorized yeah. every variety of hamburger in this city with new words that I've invented. Yeah. Today, that's a kook. Yeah, yeah, but for a years while... ago, that person's a genius. Yeah, absolutely, a hundred percent agree. Um, we we talked quite a bit about Carl Linnaeus in the last one, who's the the father of taxonomy, right? So it's this the standardization of a method of classifying living beings. It's these attempts to start sciencing the discipline of biology. They're trying to uh, make it. Uh, quantifiable and objective and obviously naming these things isn't on its own an objective thing but like it's a starting point right it's a it's a method of mm. creating a, a lingua franca that that everyone can refer to and make sure they're referring to the same thing when they say the same words right this doesn't just happen to animals it also happens to people remember there is this notion of of races being kind of separate and it's like, well, okay, that's fine. If we need to separate things and name things based on their characteristics, then let's go ahead and separate and name human beings. And that's exactly what starts happening. There's there's uh, attempts at classifying human beings into different taxonomies. Now, there's there's two things to really keep in mind while we're talking about this very early uh, attempt to classify. One is that we're still kind of hanging on to the vestiges of the concept of the great chain of being. And we talked about it in, in evolution, but essentially there's this idea of a cosmic hierarchy in which every single thing has its place. There are things that it's higher than or lower than, and there's no room to move up or down this hierarchy because it is created by God and it is immutable. This was a backbone of medieval thinking and while there's sort of nods to trying to dismantle this theory in the early modern period, you know, it's it's not so easy to just kind of change your entire worldview that way. And aspects of it will continue to seep in uh, for a very, very long time, even when people have stopped directly acknowledging it. The other thing to keep in mind is the idea of ethnocentrism, which is that when you're talking about taking things and ranking them, if they're not purely quantitative in nature so if they're not being like measured in in a purely objective way what happens is you start assigning value to things that don't necessarily have an objective value and all of a sudden you're stuck saying that things are better or, than or worse than higher or lower than than that don't actually necessarily hold that value unless you're coming from a, a particular perspective kind of the conflation of being systematic with being rational I think that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because what you start getting when, you know, you have these, you know, in, in this case, all European scientists classifying things, they'll look at all the races and go, well, you know, white people are the most attractive. And it's kind of like, but okay, based on what exactly? And they'll go, well, the My preference, God. the preference of everyone I've spoken to. I took in data. <laughs> It's like, did you speak to I anyone? All my friends. Did you speak to anyone who wasn't white? And it's like, well, no. But why would I need to? You know, like there, there's there's things like that where you need to question like very very base assumptions about what you're doing, uh, or else you're going to end up with tainted data. And these people didn't remember the height of science was counting types of bees. Uh, you know, it's 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 understandable how they're in that spot, but there's a real harm done. Um, intentionally or not, by taking these uh, very objective measurements, if you want to even call it that, values, I suppose, and 
trying to give it a scientific makeover. And obviously by by objective, I mean like they're assigning it a value of some sort, not that it's, you know, a, a universal uh, objective or anything like that. I suppose quantitative would be a better word, wouldn't it? Hmm. The other thing that starts happening in, in and around these attempts at classifications is people start incorporating more than just your language and culture and family into how they divide types of people. They start incorporating things like psychological criteria, which are mainly based on extremely broad stereotypes and valuations of their culture. So they start doing things like saying, well, all people of X ethnicity are hard workers or are aggressive or are intellectual. And it's kind of like, okay, based, based on, based on what exactly? And, and the answer comes down to racial stereotypes. Is but, this the emergence, uh, the, the very ugly early emergence of an interest in things like psychology and sociology? Yeah, certainly. You could you could definitely point to this stuff. I mean, we're 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 going to blow right through the discipline of of anthropology and all of this, right? Right. And and yes, psychology at this point in time is barely removed from like the four humors system, right? Like you're still having these people referring to certain races as being bucolic or, you know, like it's it's not helpful data in any way other than to kind of make a list of how people were racist about other people at this point in time. It doesn't meaningfully categorize anybody, especially because you'll have very, very clear incidences of people of one supposed category exhibiting traits of another. And kind of like discovering indigenous people in the Americas, you'll have people making classifications go like, oh, well, they're... Hang on, I've got an, ex uh, an explanation for that that doesn't require me to modify my model. Um, you know, you see, they just have ancestors of this other race or something like that, and they'll just kind of hand wave it all away. I'm kind of reminded of the geocentric model of the universe mm. and the gyrations necessary in order to explain the bizarre movements of the planets and other bodies within this system that just kept adding complexity to uh, the model in order to explain things that fundamentally could not be explained by it. Yeah. And, and I think a lot like that model, once you kind of strip away all the complexity and just, you know, question one fundamental underlying question, it all makes a whole lot more sense. You know, yeah. it's, it's just sort of how these things go every once in a while. And, and I don't know, maybe that over complexification and that, you know, clinging to old models is uh, not a necessary step, but a common one in going through one of these massive sea changes. I, I don't know, but people do tend to resist change in, in a lot of cases. So I would not be surprised. Somewhat like stepping through a period of uh, the bourgeois being a necessary ruling class before the proletariat can take over for Marx. Something like that. You said it, not me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Another uh, innovation in the scientific classification of race comes up at this point in time. Um, have I made it clear enough, by the way, that all of this stuff is absolute nonsense? I, I, I feel like it's probably it doesn't need to be said, but like, man, this this topic honestly does make me a little bit uncomfortable to talk about. Um, it's, oh, it's I get it. An uncomfortable thing to discuss. I'll, I'll try to keep that sort of 
clarification to a minimum. It gets tiresome, I know, but like, yeah, this is all this is all garbage. This is all weird racist stuff put up put forward by Europeans who, you know, in the best of intentions, uh, have have trouble seeing themselves as equal to all people, and you know, at the worst, are are looking to actively construct models uh that that allow their dominance over other cultures in the world um yeah that it's in fact require it yeah, yeah, well exactly it's it's yeah it's it's complete punk i think the difficulty is that you and i have known each other for so long that you don't even need to disclaim to me how dumb and crazy you think this is and the same is in reverse because we're well aware of how uh we feel about this kind of horrible material yeah, yeah, I, I I would agree, but I mean, I I don't know. I'm never going to apologize for saying that racism is bad. So you know, this is this is fine. I'm fine with it. But we can we can move on. What was I going to say? Oh, and yeah, new new innovation. Um, the color theory of race. This is notable in that it's something that you still see remnants of today. The number of theories that are put to get, put together in terms of like how many human races even uh, varies wildly over this period, by the way, it goes anywhere from one to, I think the highest I saw was 62 completely <laughs> distinct and fully objectively uh, distinguishable races of human beings. Yeah. One that has like a pervasive uh, impact though, on our discussion of, of race to this day is the color theory of race, which divides human beings into five races, white, black, yellow, red, and brown, respectively referring to Europeans, Africans, Asians, indigenous people of the Americas, and Southeast Asians. This is the kind of thing that you still will hear used to this day for basically all of these color classifications in more or less the same method. This is put forward by Johann Blumenbach in 1779. And this, this study that he puts out is notable for two reasons, I think, in, in, my, in my opinion. One is the, the establishment of this color theory of race, but the other is that he bases all of this on an examination of over 60 human skulls in which he takes exhaustive measurements of all of them. Skull measuring is going to become like just an obsession with with scientific racists they love oh, measuring phrenology skulls. is so popular yeah 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 phrenology it, it continues to this day to be a, a hallmark of of if not specifically uh racism then then certainly it's a it's a canary in the coal mine of potentially racist thinking anytime you see someone talking about skull measurements uh, be very very wary it's likely racist blumenbach the one that packed the skulls no Okay. No, I don't believe so. It's it's interesting because I, I don't think Blumenbach was... Not all of his conclusions were inherently racist in and of themselves. In fact, he had a lot of things to say that would argue against the classification of human beings into distinct races. For example, he noted that differences between or the amount of variability between African skulls is actually far greater than the variability between some African skulls and, and others in the world. And what he's noting there is genetic diversity in the African continent relating back to humanity's origin there. Hmm. He's also not taking these measurements and saying, you know, the, I don't know, the, the angle of the nose bone results in a higher intellect or whatever. All he's doing is trying to come up with a classification system. And again, 
we've already just discussed how that is in and of itself a, a harmful thing, but mm. this isn't quite where we're going to end up with all of this, right? The real harm comes, eh, I say the real harm as though none of this has been harmful so far. It becomes like plutonium grade, extreme harm in the middle of the 19th century. And the first step towards it is actually something that you and I spent an entire episode talking about, which is uh, the development of anthropometrics by Alphonse Bertillon mm -hmm. for the purposes of forensics. Mm -hmm. Bertillon, if you need an, a refresher, was a police officer. And what he was looking to do was find a way of distinguishing individuals from one another to circumvent the use of disguise to get out of criminal warrants. You could very easily change your facial hair or your gait or your clothing. It was very easy to not be recognized by police. And he had this theory that, you know, the length of someone's arm doesn't really change once they're an adult or, you know, the distance between their pupils or, you know, he came up with all these uh, measurements that you could do to a criminal write it down. And if you found someone matching those exact measurements, then you could be pretty confident that that was the same person. Right. As we discussed, it was frequently inaccurate and not all that good. <laughs> kind of a joke. Kind of a joke. But it, what this points towards is a, an attempt to quantify measurements of the human body. And it very, very quickly turns into a discipline called physiognomy, which we also talked about, de uh, developed by Cesare Lombroso, which is this attempted link between physical characteristics and moral characteristics. Lombroso wanted to go beyond just identifying people who had already done a crime. He wanted to go full minority report and figure out who was going to commit crimes. Oh, boy. And this was the dude who came up with all those rules who, you know, where it was like, oh, you know, uh, people with a heavy brow are more likely to commit violent crimes or, you know, a weak chin points to a weak intellect or whatever. I, I, I'm kind of making those up. I don't remember if those are real ones or not. I really don't care what he had the to astrology say. Astrology of the face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the brain or by, you know, via the skull in specifically mm -hmm. phrenology, right? where they're, they're measuring lumps and saying that it has something to do with the over or under development of those regions of the brain that cause moral decrepitude or whatever nonsense they're up to. And this is where it like really goes sideways. And I almost feel bad for like, you know, taking Bertillon and, and lumping him in with the rest of this. Cause like he may have started it, but this is not where he intended to go. Um, mm. The next step that happens where it gets really, really, really out of hand is taking those like, personal characteristics that Lombroso was saying uh, had some effect on your criminality and expanding it to race as a way to scientifically differentiate them from each other. So all of a sudden you have this, this system that goes from burglars always have BDIs or whatever and going, well, people of X race have a distinctively smaller or larger or whatever physical characteristic. And what that means about every person who looks that way is this. Right. The shift of scientific racism to purely biological factors is an incredibly damaging one. And I don't think that it's an accident that it happens amid one of the largest periods of colonialism in European history. 
there is a lot of stuff that was already going on to help justify racism or other types of conquest that, you know, were doing their jobs. If you look at chattel slavery in the United States, there are a lot of point, uh, a lot of people pointing to the curse of Ham that we discussed earlier as justification for why people with dark skin should be enslaved. It says so right in the Bible. Now, what we're replacing all of that with is supposedly scientific and by definition, therefore, objective, quote unquote, observances and uh, classifications of people of different races that justify domination or subjugation. Is this influenced partially by the American idealism around the individual and it getting more difficult to burden an individual with something like the biblical dictates because an individual uh, is held higher in America based on the uh, contemporaneous ideas, meaning that you, you don't want to say that someone deserves something just because of how they were born or their their inheritance um, biologically, but you want to point to that individual and say, because of this aspect of that person, they deserve this end that they're getting. Was, was that a factor? Um, I think if anything, it was more of a factor in the beginnings of uh, religious recession in Europe in comparison to the Americas, because okay. there are a lot of people in the South who are still willing to take biblical justification for chattel slavery as being enough. Individual liberties are viewed in the United States, and again, I'm speaking in very, very broad terms here, but individual liberties are very much seen as applying to a specific class of people, namely white men. And as much as you want to talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the, the other factor of that is that that's only meant to apply to citizens, and citizens are a narrow subset of the population. The original reading of that line is actually life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. Right. Property rights being, I would argue, more important than personal rights in the United States in this period of time, and, and potentially up to this day. When you have a biblical justification for, uh, for considering another person property, then they just become uh, part of your own individualist mandate, I guess. So... I don't think that that religious justification was starting to falter in the South, because I, I think when something benefits you as clearly and as drastically as chattel slavery did to uh, white slave owners in the in the United States, um, you only need enough to keep the status quo. You don't necessarily start seeing that sort of failing of the justification and the need for uh, a replacement. What you will see, though, is that as newer justifications for racism come, they'll begin to replace religious justifications. Because not only is it based on religious beliefs, but you can also say, see, those fancy scientists who have all the answers are saying that racism is okay, because they're saying that white people are superior to black people. Right. Three major beliefs about race develop in this system of scientific racism. One is that race is an objective biological division in humanity. So that there is, there is undistinguishably a 
difference between people of different races. There is not one single human race. And that these things can, therefore, be quantified, right? Second, race correlates with other human traits. For example, culture, psychology, social bonds, and structures, etc. And specifically, they correlate in a way that race causes those other things to manifest in a certain way. In other words, race science, scientific racism, suggests that uh, the way that your culture is structured is a function of your biological race and not the other way around. I see. And the third point is that because of these first two points, race is therefore a scientific category that is not only objective, but also explanatory and predictive. Meaning right. that somebody, basically a leopard can't change its spots. In other words, if you are of a certain race and scientific racism says that that race has certain traits, you know, therefore you have those traits. It very much locks people into a set system as it exists at that moment in time. Your second point seems in direct opposition to what you brought up uh, earlier about the Greeks and their view of seemingly the opposite, that the individual's choices uh, of what clothing they wear and what language they speak dictates how you would categorize them by race, that the, the barbarian can become the Greek. Is that awareness, um, or is awareness of that something that happens at this time? Is it because they, they did talk a lot about the Greeks in the 19th century, so yeah. were they aware of their, their contradiction? I think they were, but at the same time, keep in mind that a lot of what happens in the scientific revolution is a rejection of classic ideas. The, uh, the Middle Ages had been marked by such a, a reverence for these thinkers that, you know, when, once, uh, once some of these ideas come back around in the, uh, the mid-15th century, nobody really questions it for a long time. And that's why you have people in, you know, the 1480s practicing what's essentially Roman-era medicine because they found, you know, Galen or whatever, and went, well, he said we do this for a toothache, that's what we're going to do. The Romans, you know, they had it right. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an outcropping of that whole three eras thing, right? The, you know, the, the classical age of the dark age and the Renaissance, this idea that you're only right. just getting back up to how great the Romans and the Greeks were. What ends up happening as part of the enlightenment is this rejection of those ideas, this questioning of it, right? That's a, that's a core tenet of the scientific revolution is, you know, question everything. And at first it's, it's seen as really radical as, as almost heretical. Right. But as they realize more and more that the Greeks have some things wrong, there's a, there's an added uh, emphasis on the parts that seem almost comically wrong. One of the things about the way Greeks thought about race was not only that, you know, your clothing and such uh, was what dictated your race, but also that your race dictated your physical characteristics. Uh, to some extent now it, to a minor extent, but like, you know, they, they would, they would argue that, you know, barbarians are, uh, you know, hairier than Greeks are and that, you know, when barbarians become Greek, they stop being as, as hairy. And I mean, I don't know how much of that has to do with, you know, razor technology or whatever, but like the, that on its face is one of those things where it's kind of like, well, that can't be right. And it helps people to reject this overall idea of, of race as it existed. What's more, right. you know, they're, they're so used to scientific ideas taking primacy over classical ideas of, of, of uh, explaining the world better than classical ideas did 
that the idea of it being in direct contradiction to uh, things that were uh, purported by the Greeks and Romans, it wouldn't be the only thing kind of falling in that category. So I, I don't, if there's any awareness of it all, and I'm, I'm not sure entirely to what degree, but if there's awareness of it all, there's very much a sense of, of um, well, we know better now, if that makes sense. They had dumb ideas about medicine, so they have dumb ideas about other things. Yeah, naturally. I mean, that's that's not a that's not a viewpoint that we're immune to even to this day, right? That, you know, stuff like that always needs to be questioned to some extent. Um, For sure. But anyways, what, what ends up happening with these you know these these concepts about how scientific race can be and how objective race can be? A lot of what comes out of it is is a bunch of ideas that sound scientific on the surface, but aren't actually like scientifically measurable or supported by any evidence. So you'll have ideas like. I don't love getting specific about this stuff, but they'll have ideas about, you know, um, how your climate affects your, uh, your work ethic or your intellect so that, you know, well, it's, it, you know, the, that, uh, people raised in cooler climates are better warriors because it makes them more hardy and people in warmer climates, uh, have things easier. So they're, they're lazier kind of thing. It, and a lot of that stuff, when you, the way it's laid out is as if they've thought about it really hard and like, oh, okay, well, there's there's a there's an internally consistent argument happening there. But to look at back at it now, you go like, well, hang on, you're just laying out a reason why white people should be running the show, and especially when it's taken in context of you know the the spread of the uh, the British Empire at this point, right? Mm. Having something to point to. And basically say, you know, especially in India, right? Something to point to and say, well, British people are just inherently superior. It kind of makes that go down a little bit easier because you get two factors happening at the same time. One is this natural superiority and the other is this, this benevolent racism, this idea of a, being like a fatherly figure to these, uh, these so-called lesser races that need, they just need some guidance, right? And it's our duty to protect them. It's very like white man's burden, Rudyard Kipling, yeah. right? And, and so... The, the, those two flip sides make it a lot easier to, you know, subject some of these people to some some very, very real uh, atrocities in the name of colonialism. There's also people arguing very, very strange things, you know, and, and specifically because this is the 19th century, skin color is what ends up taking the biggest uh, lead in terms of ideas about racial superiority, right? You'll get some very, very strange ideas about what causes skin color to be darker or lighter. There are things even as far as like uh, th there was a, a fairly prominent theory that dark skin was actually caused by an illness that also affects uh, intellect. And so oh. in, in a very real way, they're saying that not only are all people supposed to be white, but that uh, darker skinned people require curing. It, it's absolutely oh. heinous oh. stuff, but they're, they're putting forward these these hypotheses and doing their their best to find some sort of real world justification so that it can be dressed up in the trappings of science. Right. And this comes down to a, a concept known as scientism. Have you come across uh, this word before? I have. I'm, I haven't looked into it deeply though. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, there's, it's used in a few different ways, but one of the more common ones is basically people, uh, uh, <sighs> trying to apply science to things that science maybe shouldn't be applied to and in doing so claiming some sort of uh, intellectual or moral superiority in the process. Mm, I've seen a few cases of that. It's, 
it, it's not an uncommon thing. It, it happens once in a while. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's a lot of what, what ends up happening here, right? Is that instead of that religious superiority that had been uh, more prevalent earlier, you find ways of saying, well, you don't, you don't even need to really worry about religion here. We have sound, universal proofs for all of this stuff, which, again, is, is not true, but it, it sounds very impressive. This kind of brings us to Darwin. And, you know, see the previous episode for discussions on evolution in general, but specifically the, uh, the issues around human evolution. Darwin's work leads to the supposedly objective mechanism by which species had become divided, right? And scientific racists took that and ran with it to, to, to hold it up as the mechanism by which human races had become divided, Basically, they're saying like, okay, well, you, you, you know, you've got all of this about uh, finches on, on the Galapagos differentiating and becoming different species. Yeah, that's, that's what happened with people. That's it right there. Mm. And there's this really interesting conflict that's happening between religion and science around evolution already that gets further muddled and further more tense when race is added to the, con- to, to the conversation, right? Because, you know, not only is there all of this science around general origin of species that is throwing some literalist ideas of about religion into question but also you have these systems that have been built up systematically over decades and and centuries in some cases around race that they're trying to fit in all of these ideas as neatly as possible without disrupting the order of things to the point that there's actually a uh, minor but fairly vocal movement within the scientific racist community. One of the or- originators is a, a guy named uh, Louis Agassiz, who's, who's Swiss but moves to the U.S., and he actually advocates for polygenist creationism. So he is a Christian who believes that the world was created by God in like the six days in the Bible, but that the Adam and Eve part specifically is incorrect because God must have created different races of people in different places at the same time. And it's kind of like, I've, I've never heard of that mix of science and religion before, but it's all in service of trying to fit his, uh, his racial construct into his worldview. And this guy becomes very, very popular in the United States because it allows you to hold that frame in your head. This kind of all brings us to uh, Arthur de Gobineau, who is a French diplomat posted to Persia and Brazil. In 1853, he publishes an essay called On the Inequality of the Human Races. Oh, boy. Here's a few of the things that he puts forward in these. It's actually a series of essays. Uh, He believes that race creates culture and that mixing races destabilizes culture. Oh, boy. Okay. He believed that there are only three quote-unquote pure races, black, white, and yellow. He believed that many ethnicities in the world were actually of entirely mixed origin, which results in, uh, in his words, degeneracy. <laughs> so he's, okay. say, he's saying that the only way to have a pure, to have a progressive and stable and, and productive culture is to not mix these sort of tendencies towards specific types of cultures. So, I mean, he, he points to a, a bunch of places that would make perfect sense for a guy in 1853 to point to as being mixed and therefore inferior. 
Yeah, it's a pretty good justification for geopolitical hegemony too. Yeah, and and all of these ideas are are heinous, but also like not not unfamiliar. This is all going to sound very very familiar. Mm-hmm. He believed that the white race was superior, uh, that it was Indo-European in origin, and uses the term Aryan to describe him. Was he the first? Um, he was not the first to use Aryan to refer to white people. He was the first to, I, I think, uh, if not the first, then easily the most prominent to use it in this specific context of racial superiority. Okay. Um, but yeah, if, if, if the question you're asking here is, is he the one that uh, inspires Nazis in the 1930s, then yes. Only 80 years. He also believed that, and this is an interesting one, he actually believes that empire in certain cases, is detrimental to racial purity. Specifically in the fact that by conquering other races, you're risking muddying your own. Wow. Yeah. He's a lot, man. Full Atlantis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, 100%. His his early writings are all about how he doesn't believe that the, the white race can be redeemed, that it's already too far gone kind of thing. He changes his mind later and turns into an isolationist who believes that it's for the good of the, you know, it's, it's all this like extremely Nazi nonsense. Again, this guy's French. Yeah. Yeah. We're and French and we're already past 1789 and yeah. Oh yeah. This is, this is second French empire. Like this is, this is well past the revolution. Yeah. Uh, The individual rights of man and, uh, yeah all of this is to say i suppose that when and and this is going to be the the theme of the second half as well let's you know just go ahead and spoil that but all of this is to say that a lot of the things that we associate with uh the third reich as being uniquely heinous ideologies are not developed in a vacuum this is all stuff that exists very very prominently in uh european culture and a lot of it for a very very specific reason in, in the context of, of empire building, all of these countries are, are heavily involved in colonialism, in, uh, specifically in Africa, but also with uh, earlier holdings still being a, a major part of their uh, economic spheres. And, you know, this all, this is all intertwined, right? Like it all comes back to, it, it all comes back to the fact that it's, it's, not, it's not out of nowhere. It's, it's got a long and very um, uh, well-documented uh, history to it. I'm sure Europe's long-standing anti-Semitism was a driver as well. That, that, uh, yeah, that is, that is very, very key in all of this. A few months ago, I did an episode with Colin about the Dreyfus Affair and, uh, mm. and how uh, late 19th century uh, France handled or mishandled the, uh, the issue of Jewish people within their borders and uh it's not a good look for france it's it's real bad this is the kind of person who is still alive when all of this stuff is happening these these people are are not only not only do they exist within society but they're prevalent i want to end this uh this section with a brief mention of of franz boas who I, I may be saying that wrong. I forgot to check the pronunciation before. Apologies if it's not correct. Uh, but he's an early 20th century German who is essentially the father of modern cultural anthropology. 
And what's so singular about Franz Boss is that he encourages the discipline of anthropology to move away from biology and taxonomy, which essentially has been what it has been up until this point. It's been an attempt, the, the entire discipline has been an attempt to catalog race and anything else that it's discovered has been ancillary to race and biology because it's striving to determine whether or not race, as it's argued, whether it supports um, the framework that's been created by scientific racism. Um, I think I forgot to mention Darwin himself doesn't argue for any of this stuff. He's actually relatively good on race, which I, I feel bad saying, but like I'm extremely surprised at. Um, yeah. He he argues for a monogenist origin of man, so everyone, a common human ancestor. And he also spends a lot of time in On the Origin of Man arguing that features that are prominently studied under scientific racism are completely irrelevant to the survival of the species. Skin tone and facial features have nothing to do with, or virtually nothing to do with uh, surviving in one climate versus another. You could get picky and talk about vitamin D and all that nonsense, but like essentially when we're talking about it from the standpoint of, of whether or not race exists from a scientific standpoint, then no, they don't matter. And he spends quite a bit of time saying that, no, they don't matter. Why are we hung up on this stuff? Whenever I read about it, I've gotten the sense that he was somewhat upset by the usage of his writings to justify these things. Incredibly so. Incredibly so. Yeah. Franz Boas, his his move of the discipline of anthropology away uh, from biology and taxonomy, instead he encourages anthropology to become a study of human culture of the extra biological factors that differentiate us and make us very similar in a lot of other ways. And based on where all of this is eventually going with this series, I thought it was interesting to point out that yeah, it's it's a it, it's a Frenchman that that puts out all of the Nazi nonsense that we kind of attribute to Germany in the 1930s and in the actual 1920s and 30s it's a it's a german who who does his best to move scientific racism out of the mainstream uh scientific discourse and he's quite successful at it part of what kind of puts the nail in the coffin of it is of course backlash against the nazis after the second world war but you know friends boss his his, his work to um, legitimize the the field of anthropology uh, is is a is a major factor in all of this. Well, that's hardening. Mm -hmm. Why don't we uh, take a break? That's been a lot. And uh, when we come back, we'll we'll switch gears and instead of scientific racism, we will talk about the eugenics movement. Okay. Back on HI one hundred and one here with Dan McGinnis. Hello. And so far, we've been talking about race science, which has been a lot. And now we're going to talk about eugenics, which will also be a lot. Yeah, I, I think this is one of those things where the seed of all of these ideas in, you know, the mid 19th century, a lot of the places that this stuff starts is in a very, very innocent place. But people take it wildly unethical places very, very quickly. And it's easy to kind of follow along on how all of this happens, but it doesn't really make it any less uh, horrific. Eugenics is a Greek term, uh, but it's actually a modern term. It's, a, it's, it's coined fairly late, but it, uh, it means good growth or good origin. Genics being the same root word as, uh, you know, genetics or, or generating or 
Genesis, all of that stuff. And, you know, the most kind of clinical definition is, is attempting to improve the genetic quality of the human population. But it quickly becomes a lot more insidious than that. It's a relatively ancient idea, which is something that we talked about a lot with evolution as well, right? Which is, you know, that it's not as though people didn't know about heritable traits, right? We've been observing that for a very, very long time, specifically in, in animal husbandry. That's your cow. Well, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, and, and it's a very, very natural question to go, well, if I can if I can take my two best cows and put them together and, and get an even better cow, why not people? And this is a, you know, Plato talked about this in 400 BCE, right? It's not a hard concept to get to. It's not one of those things like, uh, like zero, where it's just like inconceivable for so long. You know, it's, it's, it's a pretty early thing. Be before we get too deep into eugenics, I also want to just take a very, very short uh, sidestep towards uh, social Darwinism uh, and just, just mention what's going on there uh, very quickly. It's something that I think I'll be talking about more as we get further into fascism, because it is actually more of a, a fascist idea, I think, than some of this other stuff that we've been talking about, to be honest with you. But, you know, to, to be clear, Darwin had nothing to do with social Darwinism. I, I hope most people know that by now. It actually originated with a guy named Herbert Spencer, who expanded the concept of evolution to encompass uh, nations or other, you know, large groups. He, you know, he's actually the one that uh, coined the word or the term survival of the fittest but basically took it and applied it to a colonial framework. It's a hell of a phenotype. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's 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 clearly colonial or, or racist in nature. It's this idea of like, well, nations are going to go to war. Whichever one wins, that one was the stronger one. They're going to do better. The one that lost, they'll be subjugated. That's how it goes, baby. Like that's, it, it's such a weird way of, of, of looking at all of this. And it's kind of a thing that you only come up with when you're as colonially dominant as the uh, United Kingdom was at the time, right? And Spencer is is British, make no mistake about that. It kind of takes ideas from Malthus and co-ops them. We, we talked about Malthus in, in uh, evolution as well, but Malthus is the one talking about carrying capacity and this idea of uh, limited resources and a population reaching a uh, uh, an extinction event where, you know, there's just simply not enough food to sustain everybody and it's going to put pressure on the weakest members. He's basically saying, well, if four individuals in a species, then why not nations in the world? And what becomes even more insidious th about that is that in recognizing it, the idea isn't like, a, oh, we need to find a way to work together. What Spencer proposes is like, a, oh, well, if it's a zero-sum game, we better win it. Yeah. Yeah. That's not quite what eugenics is. It, like, social Darwinism is a, like, it's 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 a very much like a, an appeal to nature type thing, right? It's like, a, well, things are cutthroat and that's the way it is in nature. So that's probably the best way for things to be in, in you know, human society as well, which is just a fallacy. No, no, eugenics is more of a... a, a deliberate meddling in the uh in the levers of of evolution to try and and improve things and interestingly enough one of the very first major proponents of eugenics is well the, and the guy who, who coins the term in 1883 is actually a half cousin and contemporary of charles darwin uh -huh. it's it's like who wrote this series you know like it's a little too pat <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I feel like there's a few members of his family that have gotten notoriety for things that's like, really? Yeah. Associated with him. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, Francis Galton, 1822 to 1911. Yeah. He reads On the Origin of Species and goes, okay, interesting. What you're saying is that in nature, nature just sort of takes care of the weakest members of the species and continues to make that species better and better. And mind you, this is a this is a misrepresentation of Darwin's ideas. We talked about mm-hmm. it pretty pretty extensively, but Darwin applies absolutely no qualitative values to the mechanisms of evolution. As far as he's concerned, anything that allows uh, uh, an individual to reproduce is is good, um, or or is is going to be passed down. Not even is good. That's that that in itself is a mischaracterization. It's it's just a it's just a description of a force. It's not a, a value judgment, right? But what Galton became concerned about was that human society, modern society, was keeping you know in in his in his words or in in his ideas, I guess, uh, to paraphrase him, it was keeping weaker members of the human race alive to the detriment of humanity as a whole. Uh, he comes up with this idea of like regression to the mean in a biological sense, where if you continue to keep uh, less exceptional members in the gene pool, it's also going to pre- uh, prevent more exceptional members from improving the overall health of the gene pool. Yeah. And as I said, this isn't... You can see where he's sort of coming from on all of this stuff, right? The issue is that, as it is with so many appeals to nature, right, is that it ignores so many other factors that are completely relevant in this, such as the fact that, you know, human beings uh, having a complex society with, you know, stuff like helping each other and medicine and all of this stuff is in itself a a product of evolution uh, in that we've evolved enough of an intellect to learn how to support other members of our species. That's... That is part of nature as well. We can't just take uh, things like technology and science and medicine and remove them from nature as though it's a completely separate thing. But again, you can you can sort of see where Darwin's ideas gets him there to some extent. His 1869 book uh, called Hereditary Genius argues for the use of artificial selection to improve human stock. He basically says that the most intelligent among us, among us should be having the most babies. He actually... And this is like, this is very like aristocratic British 19th century, in my opinion. Like it, it feels very 19th century British, but he just sort of yeah. believed that the less intelligent were more fertile because they had more kids, ignoring a lot of complex sociopolitical economic factors that might, you know, result in this. But, you know, it's a class thing, you know. Yeah. 19th century British aristocracy. Mm hmm. And basically what Galton is doing at this point is you know, just, just proposing changes in social mores to counteract this, you know, corrupting force. He, he just sort of, he wasn't, he wasn't necessarily, because, you know, this is, this is before Gregor Mendel and like the understanding of hereditary transmission of traits, right? So he doesn't really know what to do about it other than just feeling like the wealth should have more kids and the, the lower classes should have less. And that we, sh- you know, that, that the British society in general should adopt that as a uh, as a value. His his eighteen eighty three work, uh, inquiries into human faculties and its development, was the first place that eugenics was used as a word, and it fur- further clarifies 
that what eugenics specifically was for him was a study of agencies under social control that may improve or impair the racial qualities of future generations. And notice the inclusion of race in this idea. Mm. Now, it's interesting because there are going to be some eugenicists who hold up eugenics as the polar opposite of uh, scientific racism, which is kind of interesting. Their argument for this is that Scientific racism would tell you that there are immutable factors um, about your position in society and culture uh, that are tied to your biology. What eugenicists are suggesting is that anyone, regardless of their biology, may contribute in some way to uh, enhancing or improving uh, the overall uh, fitness of their race, that everyone has this potential. Um, right. Yeah. Without getting into the weeds of discussing what they think improvement actually means. Well, yeah, of, of course. That's, and that's where, that's where eugenics falls apart, right? That's, that's the exact question that always tears eugenics down, which is what, what does better mean? You know, what is yeah. improvement? It, it, and it's a really important question. Galton will uh, help to divide the discussion of eugenics into basically two types one is what's known as positive eugenics, which essentially means finding good matches. So encouraging, you know, strong, healthy, intelligent people to have lots of children. It's like an early progenitor to eHarmony. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gross. Um, and, then, uh, and then negative eugenics, which is the prevention of reproduction for people with undesirable traits, which is a nice clinical way of, of saying that, I suppose. In other words, if there are, if you have bad traits, don't have children. There's very little discussion with with Galton specifically of what exactly the mechanisms of negative eugenics looks like, and that's the trouble, isn't well, it? He's talking about high-minded philosophy. He's not going to get into the ugly business of what he's actually saying. Mm -hmm. That discovery of Gregor Mendel's work on heredity. Uh, in the early 1900s, leads to a renewed interest in those practical mechanisms. Because all of a sudden, people are, you know, figuring out what the difference between a dominant and a regressive gene is, and, you know, all, all of that, you know, drawing Punnett squares. And uh, it, all of a sudden, there's this understanding of how, you know, at least at a, at, a, at a fairly basic level of how that's going to work. Now, this does result in a 30-year uh, feud between statisticians and biologists because, uh, well, the, the, the randomness of uh, genetic heredity isn't understood until the 1930s. But now, now that we have this mechanism by which we can go like, okay, well, this is how we would actually enhance or diminish certain traits and, and how it would actually show real results in a population, how that would work. You also get Charles Davenport in, uh, in the United States lives 1866 to 1944 and he is the most ravenous eugenicist you're going to see for for at least some time here this man obtains funding from the carnegie institution actually to oh. research eugenics and he ends up setting up like not one but several uh organizations to both promote and research genetic improvement there's the uh station for experimental evolution set up in 1904 there's also the Eugenics Records Office in 1910. This one's particularly insidious because what they do is oh, they yeah. 
they uh, they track family trees and other public records, creating this massive database of people's pedigree. I guess, for lack of a better word, like it's really oh, creepy. That is, that's horrific foreshadowing. And uh, yeah, start delving into them to try and find indicators for, you know, potential genetic issues. You know, what's what's the issue? Are both of those organizations in the U.S.? Yes, they are. Okay. Yeah, he, he's also the first president of the International Federation of Eugenics Organizations, reorganized in 1925, which is an attempt to coordinate negative eugenics policies being established in, in multiple countries. So let's just not worry. Mm. Let's not just worry about like the good babies. Uh, let's worry about preventing the bad babies. Mm. He actually has a series of public debates with Franz Boss regarding the nature of culture and its relationship oh. to genetics, um, which are very ex- embarrassing for him. Boss, yeah, wipes the floor with him a little bit. Oh. It's actually detrimental to some of his professional relationships at some point. But he, he he is a firm believer in this very genetically based idea of culture. And a, a lot of the words that I'm saying, like while they're accurate to how he would describe himself and what his organizations would attempt, what a lot of listeners will have noticed by now is that a lot of the things that I'm saying are kind of code words for very insidious things. Yeah. <laughs> or or used as dog whistles for these things. You know, culture and and all of that just ends up being used as a placeholder for race in a lot of discussions and for very good reason because these people believe that race and culture go hand in hand and so when they're talking about improving culture or you know the health of the nation they do mean very specific things and and davenport did mean very specific things that is the uh the in the united states the promotion of the white race he's behind these cute fun things like the the best baby competition where you know you know like you know how a county fairs you can like bring in the best like calf and like get them judged and the best one gets you the blue ribbon they were doing that at county fairs for babies blue ribbon baby yeah and and like i've seen i've seen some of the photos and they are jarring it's really creepy But it's an attempt to normalize this idea of good genes as being important to a good nation, right? Like, ugh. He was contemporaneous with uh, Jim Crow era uh, Mm -hmm. in U.S. politics. Mm -hmm. Was he interacting with that? Was was he getting a feedback loop from people involved in that? Yes, to some extent. I I think he was more... I, I think he saw well I, I mean i know he saw race mixing as a, as a as an issue and and was was firmly against it but a lot of his because he was so high up in the policy chain he saw jim crow as being about as good as he was going to get necessarily at that point in time and focused a lot more of his political clout on immigration he was responsible uh. for some very strong anti-immigration legislation in the united states to uh, try and, you know, we, we don't want to cut off immigration, but we want uh, the right kind of immigrants. Right. Mm-hmm. The International Federation of Eugenics Organizations cooperated largely, largely with uh, the United Kingdom, where uh, the eugenics movement was very, very popular among the upper classes, beginning like before the First World War. There are some, there are some big names who were uh, very interested in these ideas. John Maynard Keynes, for example. 
the famous Ooh. the famous uh, uh, economist H.G. Wells of all people. I would have thought he'd be a little under a little more understanding, but no. Uh, yeah. Winston Churchill, that one less surprising. <laughs> you know, there's there's this general movement in in the UK towards again not not a whole lot gets done policy wise, but the idea in this era sort of put forward by Davenport is this concept of uh, negative eugenics uh, for the lower classes and positive eugenics for the upper classes. So a two-tiered approach. Look, the last few centuries of us uh, selectively breeding our children has actually been a really good idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is the, uh, the 1913 Mental Deficiency Act, which uh, oh, no. aimed to segregate the, quote, feeble-minded from the rest of society. That's that's one of those oh, no. terms that, like, at the time was considered, like, an actual precise yeah. diagnosis, kind of along the the, the, the lines of, of uh, imbecile or idiot. Um, it was a, it was right. a specific, it, you hit specific criteria. But it, it significantly increased the, the amount to which mentally ill or cognitively impaired uh, individuals were segregated from the rest of society. There were never any official legal policies of, for example, sterilization mixed in with this act, but there were a lot of very enterprising doctors involved in some of these facilities. I take it this is the rise of uh, sanitariums as being a a place where people with um, mental health issues were relegated. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they they had already started in in the United Kingdom in the Victorian era, but um, yeah, late late eighteen hundreds. Yeah, but the um, the degree to which they were segregated from the rest of society became significantly enhanced. Um, They they became less and less part of the community, and more and more a place to be feared. Um, not that they weren't in the Victorian era, but more so. There's there's limited policy status by the 1930s, but any drive in the United Kingdom towards an actual like on the books sterilization act uh, really loses steam uh, after the Nazis come to power. Not to say again that it never happened, but it was it wasn't in official policy in the same way. It kind of died as a private member bill in the 30s. In the U.S., on the other hand, all of these foundations that were working away at eugenics uh, made significant headway in getting policies passed towards their their goals this research comes out in the early 20th century linking certain mental illnesses to hereditary causes uh, especially schizophrenia for example mm. which really helped strengthen their argument for eugenics right basically in terms of why would you want this passed on to the next generation and there are state laws being written as early as the late 19th century. I think Michigan was the first one to attempt it in the late 1890s. And they're, they're not on a federal level at this point, but a whole bunch of them pop up in the early 20th century. Uh, they start with prohibiting marriage for people with mental illnesses, and that classification widens significantly over mm. the next uh, few decades. And then some of these laws widen from uh, marriage prohibition to forced sterilization. Yeah. There's a 1927 Supreme Court challenge to these laws, very Good. understandably under like constitutional uh, criteria, but the Supreme Court upholds them. Uh. Yeah. And with that decision... The, the criteria widen further and the kind of boldness with which medical authorities feel justified in forced sterilization uh, widens. So 
it, it widens from, you know, mental illnesses and uh, cognitive uh, disabilities to other neurological conditions, certain uh, criminal acts in some cases, even things like having families that are too big uh, under whatever Ooh. criteria that they've decided uh, fits, usually under the auspices oh, of sort of like social work, right? You know, yeah. larger families tend to be with uh, with um, lower income families, like larger numbers of children tend to be with lower income families. And it's kind of a, well, you can't support any more children type determination. Um, kind of cloaked in benevolence of we're going to help you mm -hmm. stop yourself from getting worse. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that's accurate. So, I, I mean, the, the number of things that you can be forced into sterilization under is is extremely wide. You know, uh, uh, certain sexually transmitted uh, infections. Uh, if you had uh, syphilis, you could be uh, sterilized. If you had dementia, uh, if you had a autism spectrum disorder, if you had even things like um, whether you were engaged in sex work or not certain you know if you if you committed a bad enough crime i think i mentioned that already but you know the 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 number of of infractions that one could be uh compelled to be sterilized under are are enormous and by by the time the law is is finally rescinded in in the 1960s more than 60,000 people in the united states are sterilized by force i assume sexual orientation is grouped in there as well I don't know. I would imagine so. I, I the the thing to keep in mind there is that sexual orientation is pathologized up until yeah oh the seventies I believe. Um, so I I don't imagine that a doctor would hesitate to do so. Yeah. And beyond the very on the face ethical problems of all of this, it's important to keep in mind that some of these criteria that they're using also inherently disproportionately target women visible minorities and indigenous people. Yeah. They tend to uh, blame things like birth defects, which by the way, could cause uh, forced sterilization. You, you had uh, one child that was deformed in some way. Uh, we better prevent that from happening again. Um, that's blamed on the mother for carrying the child. So women are disproportionately yeah. uh, affected. And, you know, a bunch of these uh, criteria, things like poverty or large families or sex work are uh, economically tied, right? Yeah. Things like a cognitive disability, which, you know, won't be very carefully assessed. It often came down to things like literacy or IQ, which, you know, IQ tests in and of themselves are a whole different uh, conversation on ethnocentrism, right? If yeah. you fail an IQ test, you could be uh, eligible for forced sterilization. And this era of the United States educational opportunities for black people are significantly lower than white people. So yes, of course they're disproportionately targeted there. You know, it's, it's not, it's not just that it's wrong in and of itself, which it is clearly, but it's also that it it's uh, racially discriminatory as well. Yeah. Oh. The eugenics records office concluded, in fact, after it had been open for some time, that economic status correlated strongly with undesirable traits, which justifies economic status as a criteria. Now, an inter interdisciplinary approach to all of this would tell you that, well, you know, things like mental disorders or educational level attained, things like that are, you know, correlated with 
race in that those people are denied opportunities. So you can't really call that a specifically genetic thing necessarily, but that's not what this office is designed to do. It's not looking to get to the roots of socioeconomic uh, issues in society. It's designed to find criteria by which to exclude people genetically. And that's what it's doing. And that's what makes it unscientific. So many people are sterilized under these rules. The rules are so widely applied to so many cases and so many policies are put in place that, or, or, or discussed that don't even actually get implemented, but are widely distributed that the United States eugenics program is cited by Nazi scientists at the Nuremberg trials as a defense. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> And I really just want people to sit with that for a second. The idea of using euthanasia as part of a comprehensive eugenic policy is an American concept put forward by a Rockefeller-funded research group. And they specifically, they specifically recommended the use of gas chambers to do so. Were they the first to, to publish that kind of a suggestion? To the best of my knowledge, yes. Again, <sighs> like we mentioned with the scientific racism portion, I really, really want to hit home that this stuff does not come up in a vacuum in the 1930s under the Nazis. I don't want to harp too hard on the United States, though, either, because they're not the only country who has a policy based in either scientific racism or eugenics, or sometimes both in the early to mid 20th century around the world. Like this isn't a unique problem. In Australia, they have something called the stolen generation. Between 1910 and 1970, between 10 and 30%, we don't know the actual number, which is a terrifying thing. Between 10 and 30% of Aboriginal children are taken from their families and placed in non-Aboriginal homes. And the rationale by the Australian government is that this is a benevolent thing because by their estimation, the Aboriginal race is unable, is it's 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 incapable of its of supporting its own continued existence. And so they are going to roll it into a Australian culture, thereby allowing their continued existence. Oh boy. They're hoping to culturally assimilate mixed descent children because of the failure in their eyes of the Aboriginal race being an inevitability. Canada, not good. Didn't do a good job. Did not. 1928, we passed the Sexual Sterilization Act targeting, quote, mental deficiencies. Note that it's, by, by the way, note that it's just the year after the Supreme Court upheld their discriminatory act. Thought that was interesting. Yeah. There's some major figures in Canadian history that are held up as like prof progressive icons that are massive advocates for a eugenics movement here. Um, Emily Murphy comes to mind. The act has pretty wide criteria, again, for who can be legally targeted for, for sterilization. It stays on the books until 1972. About 5,000 people, we think were forcibly sterilized in Canada, mostly in Alberta, during the tenure of this act. It's disproportionately applied to Indigenous women in Canada. Yep. 
it's so indiscriminately applied to indigenous women that the principal of a residential school in Canada had the discretion to force someone to go through this. Wow. So like you could get detention, you could be forcibly sterilized. I, (laughs) I don't know. It's, it's, it's just absolutely, it's absolutely wild. It's completely shameful. There are, in the 1960s, there's a there's a wave of uh, indigenous children being forced into the uh, foster care system in Canada. Um, yeah. It's called the 60s scoop. And as part of this wave, there's also further forced sterilization of uh, indigenous women. Sometimes women would be offered uh, sterilization in exchange for the opportunity to keep their child. <laughs> Sometimes they would be sterilized as part of the birth procedure without their knowledge. Oh boy. Didn't know that. Do you know when the last, sorry, this, this isn't even part of it, but do you know when the last time is that this happened with almost certain, like almost a hundred percent certain that it happened? Is it horrifically recently? Four years ago. Pardon me? Four years ago. 2016. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was there was Where? um I want to say Winnipeg. Yeah. We have some letters to write. Mm-hmm. Sure do. It's yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh our our national reckoning with our treatment of indigenous people is a is a very different topic here, but it, it's it's worth yeah. pointing out that it is very much a part of this eugenics movement. It is a decision on a state level as to who is fit to reproduce and who is not. And that should be extremely upsetting for people. Japan had policies. Korea had policies. Sweden, France, Iceland, Norway, obviously Germany. But I mean, the thing that I want to point out here is that Germany didn't really come up with any of this stuff. And obviously we'll get into it in a little bit more detail when I get to fascism, but... What I want to make very, very clear by not really getting into it here is that when Nazi scientists go on the stand at Nuremberg and say, but everybody is doing this stuff, we just got a lot more state support and we took it a bit further, they're not wrong. Yes, the numbers are horrifying. Yes, it resulted in genocide. Genocide was a proposed solution by eugenicists in the United States and elsewhere before it was in Germany. And I'm not saying first is, is worse necessarily than actually doing it, but this stuff, again, does not come out of a vacuum. And I think if I have one thesis for the fascism topic as a whole, it's that it's not special. Yeah. And that's really what I'd like to get across with a lot of this stuff. It's not special. Yes, Germany has a a uniquely robust version of all of this. They apply race science in a way that has not really been done before. That is extremely openly and on a policy level. They decide which races they believe are worthy and which are not. They incentivize having children for the right people and they exterminate people who are not the right people. All of this is like, it's true. It's, it's so much worse than we've seen before. But they don't come up with it out of whole cloth. This is stuff that happens before and after the Second World War in other parts of the world. 
and just a slightly minor degree or a slightly lesser degrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, <sighs> eugenics is one of those things where I'm not sure if you can do a little eugenics and call it better, you know, it's, it's really, really tough. Most of these programs have been repealed, but some of them have just been modified or hidden in more or less complicated ways. You know, the development of the modern discipline of, of genetics in the 50s, you know, it's really only complicated matters since then. It's given us new ways to do eugenics, things like genetic screening or the possibilities of genetic engineering for children. Even transhumanism is worth talking about to some extent. Uh, the idea of modifying our bodies uh, in, in, you know, through non-genetic means. If it's taught us anything, it's that genetics are really hard and messy and not an exact science. You know, the biologists were kind of right on that stuff. But, you know, even to this day, every once in a while, you'll hear somebody from the scientific world say something along the lines of, you know... I'm not really supposed to say this, but eugenics would work. Someone very prominent very recently said that, and it got a lot of attention. I bet. And here's... This part, I think, I just want to briefly run over some of the ethical issues with eugenics, because I think scientific racism, it's kind of obvious on its face why it's wrong and how it's wrong, I would hope. There is nothing to support any of those claims. The ways that eugenics can be presented are insidious and and yeah. sneaky and brain worms, you know? They can just get in there. And so I, I, I would like to go over a couple of those real quick. I think the first one, and, and probably the most important one, is something that you already mentioned, which is who decides what traits are good and bad? Mm. If you're in a country like Canada or the United States with a significant indigenous population but with a majority white government who has shown a, a history of genocide towards those people. Are, are we really trusting them to decide which traits are good and bad? Is that a good idea for us? Because it seems like a bad idea to me. Mm-hmm. Can a trait be removed at all? Most, most genetic diseases are regressive, which means that it's almost impossible to know if you've eliminated it from... A population without knowledge of every single individual's genome in that population. So do we want do we want a government codifying every single person's DNA? Are you willing to put up with that level of of uh, intervention? If a trait is regressive but it doesn't actually show up in you, should you have to pay the consequences for that? I don't know. That's a tough one too. Can a trait be increased or decreased without affecting other traits? We kind of talk about all of this stuff as though it's possible to just like move a slider like it's setting up a video game, right? Well, we'll just yeah. we'll just take the most intelligent people and, you know, try and increase the intelligence of the population. Okay. Well, I mean, intelligence is correlated with other uh, factors genetically. Some of them would be considered negative. Depression is one that comes to mind. So are, are we, you know, that's, that's the next question is if something changes more than one thing, are we, you know, how do we decide which one's better or worse? Sickle cell anemia is a genetic disease that it's regressive. It doesn't always show up in a population, 
But if you have the gene for sickle cell anemia, even if it's regressive, even if you never get the disease, you are much more resistant to malaria than the average person. I didn't know that. Far more. Yeah, far more. Far far more. uh, Well, that's why sickle cell anemia is so much more common in people from equatorial Africa and sub-Saharan Africa, because malaria is more common there. It is a genetic pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Selective pressure. That's exactly what it is. It it, it is a, it's an advantage for those people because all of them are going to be exposed to malaria. Not all of them are going to get the sickle cell anemia. So do we get rid of that gene? I don't know. It's like, it's not, it's not one-to-one, right? Like it's not easy. If a trait is considered, like, even if a trait is considered universally bad, and even if you can get rid of it, all on its own. Will it always be considered bad? Will medical science continue to advance to a point where it's no problem? One thing that always comes up is Huntington's, right? Horrifying disease. Who says we can't crack that one, right? And then there's other bigger questions, like is infringing on personal right to choose whether or not to reproduce worth improving the gene pool overall? Is your right to bodily autonomy more important thing than the overall genetic pool. I think a lot of people would say, yeah, especially when you consider that it's a eugenic idea to force genetically fit people to have children, whether or not they want to Mm -hmm. is infringing on that same right ethical when it's difficult or impossible to guarantee whether those traits will be transferred is narrowing the genetic diversity of the human race likely to be advantageous to us as a species, regardless of our qualitative evaluation of those traits. One thing that we've seen time and time again is that the more genetically diverse a species is, the more hardy it is. And there are things that could be kicking around in our genome that come in handy later that we have no idea why or how. Mm -hmm. And conversely, and I think personally, uh, uh, one that gets overlooked quite a bit is, is the overall genetic health of the species a significant concern for us in the modern age? We've developed a number of ways to compensate for other uh, medical issues we encounter. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and those things are, uh, I think, a really important part of our ability to survive as a species. It is an adaptive trait of human beings to support one another. And it has led to our advantage very, very clearly. And I think to ignore that and to look at genetics alone is such a callous way of evaluating human life. It's really, really creepy to me. And I know creepiness isn't on its own necessarily a reason to do or not do something, but I don't know. I I have a hard time thinking about people that way. And... It's, I mean, for something that's a very complex topic and, and like the, how genetics works is so complex, it, stepping back, the whole idea is kind of reductio ad absurdum. It's, it's way oversimplifying how you think about the development of humans as a species. Mm-hmm. Trying to pull simple levers because they're, they seem like they're easy to adjust. Well, and thinking we know what we're doing. Exactly. Like, it's, it's, the hubris of it. I don't know. I look at these. I, I look at these lists from the 1920s in, in in different countries, and I think about the number of people that I personally know who might just not have been here because they fit a criteria yeah. on that list, or yeah. 
the number of people who, you know, might not have kids that I delight in. And, and it's just, it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, you know, if, if I'm in the wrong place in the wrong time on some of these lists, I would be a candidate. And honestly, the lists are so broad that I, I really have no issue with disclosing that. And, and so would plenty of people that I know. And, and it's yeah. one of those things that I, I, I struggle to wrap my head around the level of empathy or, or lack thereof that's required to look at everyone as just a, a list of certain desirable traits uh, as a checklist, you know, uh, is, is it a check mark or an X and, you know, one too many X's and, and, and that's it. They've, they've had a horrible decision made for them. I don't know. I, 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 I really, really struggle with that. And I understand that there are certain things that happen that are, you know, technically uh, eugenic in nature that we might not think of that way, that we would just consider, you know, improvements, things like even even non-medical interventions, things like getting good, clean water to a population is a eugenic movement. Basically, anything could be considered a potentially eugenic decision if you if you consider everything through that lens but if we talk about it as being anything other than a direct intervention in someone's genetic autonomy i think that you're losing the thread a little bit because that is the place that we've ended up a number of times in a number of places over the last hundred years uh and i don't much like that place no I don't know how related this is, but I'm I'm somewhat reminded of crash test dummies when considering those lists and the impact they would have. Having a single size and shape of crash test dummy when determining the safety of cars, the same kind of tragic narrow-mindedness of what actually a human is. It's like if we're trying to evaluate the safety of a system and there's a human that looks nothing like the safety determining system, the consequences of that are profound. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's worth considering every once in a while, just a little bit, the, the concept of the default and Normalization, yeah. Yeah. And, and the consequences that that can have in just the wildest places, because especially with, you know, when, like me, in a lot of ways, I sort of fit the default. I don't see those consequences because I'm not inconvenienced by them in any way. Um, mm -hmm. the, the number of ways that, you know, the, that narrow mindedness, as you put it, um, has very wide ranging real world effects is, is enormous. You know, the crash test dummies is a, is a great example. Things like the majority of psychological studies being done on university students, which tends to select for white middle class uh, young people, is a real issue in the field of psychology. Um, drug trials being done on even on on women over men is 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 a problem that we're only starting to grapple with. There's a lot of those problems that. I don't know. I guess I guess there's two ways to look at it. And I guess this will be the best attempt I can make at a wrap up here. But I guess there's two ways of looking at that. One is is to try and make everyone fit the default, which is what eugenics is about. And the other is trying to broaden your conception of what a human is. And I, I guess if I'm I'm making an argument with any of this topic, it's it's for the latter. 
that broadening is, is not only important, but, but necessary to our survival. That represents the kind of evolutionary enhancement that we've developed is the ability to save and help more people, uh, even if they don't uh, resemble us. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I think that's maybe a, a good note to end on because otherwise we're just going to uh, continue rambling in kind of sad shock. I don't know. Does that yes. sound about right to you? Yeah, right. um, that's that's where I'm at. Okay. Um, hey, thank you so much for coming on and doing this topic with me. I know it's a tough one. It's a necessary one. I, I agree. And I, I know it's even harder uh, remotely, but uh, I'm, I'm grateful to be friends with somebody that I know can... Uh, not only handle it, but but handle it over over the internet, which is far harder with something this uh, <laughs> this delicate. Indeed. I'll Thanks for having me. Thank you. The shock at the war crimes of Nazi Germany would undoubtedly dampen the world's fervor for both scientific racism and eugenics, but just as the Nazis weren't the beginning, they also weren't the end. Eugenics programs would continue into the 1970s in several countries, and eugenic tropes are still prevalent in ableist rhetoric today. Racist tropes dressed up as scientific fact, while discredited in the mainstream by anthropology and genetics, would continue to be used after the war to support segregation and uphold white supremacist beliefs. In fact, a flyer was handed out in the past two weeks, not far from where I live, claiming that the children of mixed marriages have poor health and no sense of belonging. An understanding and recognition of both eugenics and scientific racism unfortunately remains a useful skill to this day. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I mentioned that the last instance of an Indigenous woman in Canada being sterilized against her will was four years ago. That was incorrect. It was actually two years ago, in 2018. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, hi101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there that we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI 101.